Strange Brew Podcast Season 1, Episode 105, Losing in Las Vegas. Yeah? No? All right. That worked about as well as the game did last night. Just an ugly, ugly game. Game 5 on the year for the Packers, in a word, discouraging. Doesn't mean the season's over. Doesn't mean Jordan Love's not the guy, although you're going to read a lot about that for the next couple of weeks with the bye week. It just means a young team had a really bad game. That's all it means right now. We may find out that it means more in the weeks to come. But that was the first really discouraging game, I'd say, if you're a Packer fan in Vegas on Monday night against a bad Raider team. Are we a bad team? It's possible. Meanwhile, the Badgers got a win against Rutgers, another uninspiring win. That might just be what this year is. We maybe got caught up in year one hype leading into the year, and winning ugly is what this year is going to be. At least that's what it looks like now through five games, almost halfway through the year. They get set for Iowa this weekend at Camp Randall. And I do want to toss out a brief Brewer hypothetical, as the Diamondbacks have gone on a run now since beating the Brewers. That seems to be a theme, too. But we talked a little bit about the 2011 season, and with so many big names entering their final year of their contract or their team control for the Brewers, a hypothetical that I read about on a Brewer blog late last week, I just want to throw it out there to you, see how it hits you. If you like it, keep it. If not, throw it right back at me. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's high! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Wisconsin, record-breaking run. Morgan, a smash up the middle, base hit to center, here comes Gomez, around third, a throw, and the Brewers win. Here's the snap, he looks, he throws, and and there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in. Knocked away and stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul. And a tentacle foul throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. Broxton is there. And they're the champions. They have done it. It's been a 50-year journey. Wisconsin, we've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Yeah, back at it on a Tuesday. This is episode 105 after 104.5. I did intend to do a Monday podcast. On Friday, we talked about we'll preview the Packer game on the Monday podcast, but there really wasn't much to preview. We talked about the injuries and some of the guys they had coming back. Aaron Jones not playing was a surprise. Didn't find that out, though, until an hour or two or three before kickoff on Monday. And we had off. My wife and I had off on Monday. I was intending to do a kitchen podcast. We were out late on Sunday. Bill Burr show, Pfizer Forum, one of the best stand-up comics in the game. Awesome show. The first show we've ever been to. Have you been to a show yet? I don't think concerts really do this because what do they care? Mostly it's stand-up comedians where they take your phone from you when you go in. I was very curious to see how the whole thing would work, and I am here to report to you about what all happened. And when you walk in, they do the whole security check, all that stuff. They check your tickets, and then there's a post-it note person. Because for the most part, your tickets are on your phone. Almost everybody's tickets are on their phone now, right? I don't even think there's printouts anymore. And because you're going to need to know where you sit, or if you have a couple too many drinks and you get a little lost, they give you all a post-it note. They write the seat number, the aisle number, the section all on there, and they hand that to you before you get to the security part of it. Then you go through the metal detectors, and then they give you kind of a little purse, (laughs) a little man purse, a European carry-all. 
and they put your phone in it. And I had to put my Fitbit in there. Now, those that know me know I'm a little OCD about making sure I get my steps. And I was looking forward to tacking on some steps walking all around Fiserv Forum. These better count. That's what I told. <laughs> that's what I told the woman that was giving me the bag that I had to put my phone and my Fitbit in. Because I put my phone in there, and she said, oh, I need your watch, too. And I said, it's just a basic fit that doesn't even do video it doesn't do anything that would be able to record what's going on at the show she said i know it's dumb you got to give it to me anyway and i said well these steps <laughs> these steps better count it was like one of those progressive commercials with the life coach as you get older nobody cares no one cares I had to put that in there, and then it's a magnetic seal at the top of the man purse they give you. And it's like one of those, if you ever go to Kohl's, I guess, or a higher-end department store. That's To me, that's Kohl's. Rolling in Kohl's cash over here. You know, you go to a department store, and there are certain items, clothing, electronics. They have those magnetic sticks on them where you have to have them disable that or unhook it before you leave. Otherwise, the security alarm will go off. That's what it is, and you can't open it. There are certain designated areas where I guess you could open it. We didn't go there. My assumption is they had somebody standing over there that could have opened them for you and then closed them up again when you left that section. They had maybe four or five sections where if you absolutely had to, you could use your phone for whatever reason. Okay. You throw it in the bag, and then you just you have it on you. You have your phone in the bag on your person. What was weird was two things. Number one, we probably got there at about 7.15 for an 8.30 Sunday night show. And when you sit down, (laughs) you don't know what to do because you've got to talk to the person you came with. That wasn't a problem for my wife and I. It was just, it was interesting to watch people. The knee jerk in this day and age when you're given 10 seconds with nothing to do and you don't like staring off into space is to grab your phone and check Facebook or check Twitter or check your fantasy roster, see how the parlays are going, all that kind of stuff, set a prize picks lineup or whatever. To not be able to do that was fascinating and watching other people as that realization hit in, oh, I just can't go for my phone. I've got 10 minutes of awkward silence here. (laughs) I can't go for my phone. That was interesting. You just saw some people sitting next to each other just staring off into space and not talking, not doing anything. The other element that was fascinating was there is not a single clock in Pfizer Forum. I remember at the Bradley Center back in the day, they had clocks all around the concourse. And you could see them. They're all digital clocks all around the arena that gave you the time. Well, most people now either have a watch on or you have your phone that has the time. I guess they probably thought about that when they built the arena. There isn't a single clock in that whole damn arena. Everywhere I walked, I was walking in the concourse. I was hoping some of the computer screens or TV screens that have advertising on them that sell you on Bucks season tickets or whatever, in the lower right corner, we were looking to see if you could find a time. There wasn't anything. Even the offices where some of the employees were sitting, I tried to pop my head in there. What time is it? Went to use the bathroom. I mean, there's no, there wasn't a clock anywhere. Not only did you not have the phone that you could just go to to grab to kill some time, we didn't know how much time we had. What time is it? Is it 7.40? Is it 8.15? Is it 8.30? How close are we getting to the show? It was weird. It was just a weird world where you didn't have that to lean on as a crutch to entertain yourself, and you had no idea what time it was or how close you were getting to the start of the show. Interesting, interesting element to that whole show on Sunday. But we were out late on Sunday, so I took Monday off, and then I just figured when I got up on Monday, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about the Badgers for five minutes and then injuries for the Packers for five minutes. We did the placeholder podcast to get you set. It just made more sense to recap everything on Tuesday with the Packer game, the Badger game, and then a little Brewer hypothetical in there. There was some Bucks preseason in there as well over the weekend. Let's talk about the Packers. This was, as we said off the top, this was the first discouraging game. 
We have been through five games now in the 2023 season. The Packers are two and three. The first game, you blew the Bears out. That felt good. The second game was the close loss to Atlanta. Played a bad fourth quarter, lost by a point. Falcons are three and two. It's not a bad team, at least right now. Okay, that's fine. You lost by a point on the road, a game you probably should have won with a better fourth quarter. Had the big fourth quarter come back against the Saints, who are also three and two now. Feel good about that. Coming back from 17 down, you get a win. Lions game was a touch more on the uneven side where it just was clear the Lions very early were the better team, and that's a team that could be the second or third best team in the NFC. They won again handily at home against Carolina over the weekend. They do look like they're trending to being the two or three seed come playoff time. It looks like they're the runaway favorites right now in the NFC North. I don't see anybody catching them. You lose that game by a couple of touchdowns, played better in the second half. Didn't feel great, but not totally discouraged coming out of the Lions game. And then you get the Raiders, and you had a long time to prep for it. I think that is that facet is a big part of the discussion. You had the half bye week. You had extra time to prepare for a bad team. The Raiders are a bad team. The Raiders are going to win. Well, I have the under on six and a half. I'm hoping they only win four more games the rest of the year. I think that'll be pretty close. They're going to be a five or six win team. It is not a good team. They cannot push the ball downfield. Jimmy G does not have that kind of arm. They've got a running game that's trying to find itself. Josh Jacobs was the NFL's leading rusher last year, and then he had the holdout, and he's trying to get on track. Packers kind of held him in check for the most part yesterday. A couple of big runs late, but that was about it. They're just not a good team. They are a team that didn't first force turnovers until last night. They had forced one or two turnovers in their first four games until forcing three Jordan Love interceptions last night. They have some talent. We saw Max Crosby. We'll talk about him. I mean, there are some parts to like there. That is not a good team, and you had 11 days to prepare for it. The Aaron Jones injury was a curveball. We were all expecting that he'd be back out there after limited snaps against the Lions. Makes you wonder even more why you threw him out there against Detroit. Remember before the Detroit game, my thought was they were going to give all those guys the Detroit game off, then you get the half by, and then maybe we see them back by the Vegas game. I was even thinking for a couple of those guys, Watson and Jones, before the Lions game, I was thinking they'd hold them out of the Lions game. Then you have the Raiders, and then you have the full bye this coming week. If you just sit those soft tissue guys out for that full run, hopefully they would have all come back full strength October 22nd against the Broncos, having gotten three, four, five weeks off. You wonder why Jones was even out there. Sounds like he had a setback in practice. That was not something we were anticipating coming into this game, but you should still be able to beat this team with the talent the Packers have on their roster. They should still be able to beat the Raiders without Aaron Jones. Clearly, Aaron Jones is the most dynamic offensive weapon this team has. We've been over that again and again and again. And once again, that was showcased yesterday when they couldn't find a way to score points, really. That was a curveball that we were not necessarily preparing for entering yesterday. But that's a bad team. And maybe the Packers are a bad team. Maybe we learned that. I don't think so. I think the Packers are the more talented team on paper. I hope, ultimately, the Packers win more games than the Raiders. That was a part of what was such a letdown on Monday, though. You had the extra time to prepare. You got Elton Jenkins back. Christian Watson was out there. Yes, you ended up not having Aaron Jones when you thought you would. The team's getting healthier, and they just came out so flat again. I'm going to talk about the defense real quick. We're going to talk more about the overall coaching and the offense. To me, that was the number one issue in that specific game. Not saying that I want to say see Joe Barry stick around or that this was some kind of endorsement to keep Joe Barry as the defensive coordinator. The defense was not the issue last night. They gave up 17 points. They got four sacks. They forced a turnover. If you hold a team to 17 points, that's a game in 2023 that you should win. That's something that you have to be able to take care of. And you think about the defense, too. They had, after the Jordan Love first pick, that was a short field. What were they, inside the Packer 20-yard line, and the defense held them to a field goal? 
There were some spots where it was classic Joe Barry. That first touchdown pass you had Rudy Ford when the Raiders were at the 9-yard line or the 8-yard line in Green Bay territory inside the Packer 10-yard line. And you had Rudy Ford in zone coverage two yards deep in the end zone. I said out loud to my wife before that play was even snapped, and I'm not saying I'm some kind of football savant. I am an idiot. Everybody with a brain and eyes or one eye, half a brain and one eye, when you looked at that play, that first touchdown that the Raiders scored on that specific play, you could just see the slot-wide receiver, no one was on him. And Rudy Ford was two or three yards deep in the end zone, and I said out loud, nobody's covering that guy, nobody's covering that guy, nobody's covering that guy. And what happened? A quick three-yard route, slant in, bingo, bango, into the end zone for the touchdown. Ford tried to tackle him right at the one-yard line, didn't have enough momentum, and got trucked into the end zone for an easy touchdown. That was a Joe Barry moment where you're sitting in zone eight yards or nine yards off a guy when you've only got seven six yards that you should be giving up. Made no sense. The other one you're going to see a lot of today is the fourth quarter play, which was the second and only second and last touchdown drive where Devontae finally started to get going. They held him in check for the most part, too. He had that one drive where he had three catches. That was about it. But on that drive, they had Preston Smith lined up one-on-one with Devontae Adams. Is that the matchup you're looking for? with the most dynamic wide receiver in the game, some of the best footwork in the game, and you've got an old linebacker lined up against him. Suboptimal. We'll file that one under suboptimal. When they showed that replay, I gasped. Oh, my God. Got Preston Smith one-on-one with Devontae Adams. That was literally taking candy from a baby for Devontae Adams. And that ultimately led to the only other touchdown drive of the game for the Raiders. Beyond those couple of snafus, Overall, given what we've seen from the Joe Barry defense, not a horrible night. It was not on the defense the reason why they lost the game last night. Again, not an endorsement that Joe Barry's defense is taking a step forward or that they should stick with him as defensive coordinator. Not even a stretch of that. I'm just saying in last night's game specifically, the defense was not the reason they lost that game. The reason was Matt LaFleur coaching and the offense. Once again, this team just came out flat, and I can't understand why. Three weeks in a row... I don't even know if they asked Matt LaFleur about this in the postgame. I can guarantee you his answer was probably, well, you know, it's on me. It's on the coach. I got to hand up. I got to get them going. I got to find a way to get the guys going. What was the quote he had two or three years ago? Or maybe it was last year before the London game. It was an early start time for a game, and he said that they got to wake up with their piss hot. That was his quote. I kind of like the quote. Maybe it was just a random noon game because in the Aaron Rodgers era, they didn't play a ton of noon games. It was a handful of noon games. The way things are going right now, we're going to be playing a lot of noon games. There weren't a lot of noon games. And I think a reporter asked him, this must have been two years ago, 2021 season or 2020 season, and it might have been the first noon game of the year, five or six weeks into the year, and he said they, they've got to get up earlier than they're used to given the way the season's gone. they got to wake up with their piss hot. Their piss has been ice cold. This is Mr. Freeze piss for the last three or four weeks. They had, what was Rob Domovsky's stat yesterday? In the last three games, not that it was good before that, but in the last three games, they have been outscored 54-6 to in the first half of the last three games. You want to talk about putting yourself in a deep hole that you're trying to climb out of. 54-6 to in the first half of the last three games. Matt LaFleur has got to find a way to get these guys more locked in, to get rhythm plays, especially for the offense, let them settle in a little bit, move the ball, not force the issue, not do a lot of weird plays where you've got three guys in motion and you're reverse lateraling like that one they had with Emmanuel Wilson a few weeks ago. 
none of that. Get these guys on tempo and on time and moving the football. I just can't believe how slow a young team comes out the last three times. They've got to find a way to fix that. Outscored 54-6 to in their last three games in the first half combined. And they do play better in the second half. We saw it again last night. They were down at half, and they came out. Rudy Ford got that pick right away on the opening drive of the second half for the Raiders. Packers then fed A.J. Dillon. He eventually gets into the end zone. The next drive, Packer defense gets a stop. Then you had the one nice play last night, the hookup between Jordan Love and Christian Watson. Watson looked like he was going to get into the end zone. Then the horse collar tackle that ultimately saved four points. It's a smart play. He scores a touchdown there, if not for that horse collar tackle. They end up half the distance. Then they dial up three just terrible plays, end up settling for a field goal. Still, though, at that point, they had outscored the Raiders 10 to nothing in the third quarter, had a 13 to 10 lead, seemed to be getting back on track. Why it takes an entire half of buffering and then a halftime break before they seem to wake up as a young team, I just don't understand. Sometimes you see that with championship caliber teams that know that they're waiting for the end of the year, that are just playoff positioning, know they can flip the switch whenever, and they start a little slow. I don't understand a young team that has proven nothing coming out as slow as this team has come out basically every game this year, but specifically the last three games where they've just gotten trounced in the first half. They do wake up in the second half. They get that lead. Then the Packer defense has one of those patented, oh, are we just got the lead? Cool. Not not for long. <laughs> nope, not anymore. Raiders score to make it 17-13, but then the Packers had their chances. They had their chances to get the lead back, could not capitalize. You end up at the end of that game with Josh McDaniels. Where were they? At the Packer 37-yard line at the two-minute warning. One timeout remaining for the Packers. Fourth down and a yard and a half. Packer defense look gassed. McDaniels has to get one carry with Josh Jacobs to get a yard and a half, and the game's over. Some For some reason, he decides to kick a field goal. When they came back from that two-minute warning, I laughed out loud. Oh, my God, they're kicking a field goal? Even if they make it, we're down seven, and you have a minute 40 left with one timeout, you have a chance. When I saw the kicking unit out there, I thought, well, we're going to have a chance. If you miss this, you really have a chance. And even if he makes it, you have a chance here much better than if they just go for it and get the yard and a half. Was there anybody out there? I know I didn't. If they were going to go for that yard and a half on fourth down, that game was over. That was what I was thinking. When they came back from commercial break, they're going to run it right up the gut for two yards or run some kind of draw play, easily get two to three yards, and this game's a wrap. What a gift that they kicked that field goal, and then he missed it, and he doinked it. And at that point, I'm thinking for how bad the offense has looked, you have a chance now at your own 43 with a minute 50 left and a timeout, and a touchdown wins the game. Give me one drive. They had the one drive with the short field after the Rudy Ford pick. Give me one drive to save this whole game and save how discouraging this whole game has been so far. One drive. Give me one. They end up getting down to, what was it, about the 30-yard line on third down with 50-ish seconds left, and they still had their timeout. Love evaded the rush. Then he rolled to the outside. Looked like he had some room to run there. He talked about that in the postgame. Probably could have run 10 yards for a first down, gotten out of bounds, and gotten them a fresh set of downs. Thought he had a one-on-one in the back of the end zone and just underthrew it. Third interception ends the game. They had their chances, though, to get out in front in the fourth quarter or to score on that final drive and get a win. But you can't help but think, if you don't, if you just don't dig yourself these first half holes, you're not in that position late in the game, especially against a bad team. That's how the whole thing plays out. Now, let's talk about the offense. It was real bad. Play calling, bad. Matt LaFleur play calling, very bad. 
and they tried to get A.J. Dillon going, 20 carries for A.J. Dillon. He had his best game of the year. I don't know if that says really. He had to touch down. The one drive looked very good for A.J. Dillon. Still ends up with 3.7 or 3.8 yards per carry. They just fed and fed and fed Dillon, which to me meant for some reason that Matt LaFleur was a little afraid of opening things up for Jordan Love. Didn't it feel that way all night? It just kind of felt like Matt LaFleur was hesitant to try to push the ball downfield. Maybe he wasn't trusting Jordan Love. Jordan has had a few turnover issues now after being very clean in the first couple of games of the year. It just felt like Jordan Love didn't trust himself and Matt LaFleur didn't trust Jordan Love with the play calling for most of the night. It ends up being a three-pick night for Jordan Love. Certainly that is going to lead to a cavalcade of tweets and Facebook status updates that say Jordan Love is not the guy. They got to cut bait and move on. I had a text exchange with a good buddy of mine about that last night. You saw it all over social media. I had numerous Facebook friends saying this is not the guy. A zero-touchdown three-pick game. He doesn't have the accuracy. He's got happy feet. He doesn't have what it takes to win. Put Sean Clifford in. Move into the next guy. To which I would just yeah, say, well, well. You know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Let's just take a deep breath, okay? It was his worst game as a pro. There is no debating that. Even I, as somewhat of a Jordan Love apologist, will raise my hand and say, that is as bad as he has looked. That first interception was as bad a throw as we have seen in a long time. He just didn't see the linebacker, threw it right to him, gave the Raiders a short field. Thank God they only got a field goal out of that. The second pick, he forced it into coverage. It was a tip, not totally on him, but about 75 or 80% on him. And the last one was an underthrow. He missed Watson early when Watson had his man beat. Then Watson had to try to slow up because you only have so much space until you're in the back of the end zone. Underthrew that one. I saw some people trying to spin that a little bit. I still think that's probably 75 to 80% on Jordan Love. Just not his night. Not his night in any way, shape, or form. He ends up with that three-pick game, I don't know, quarterback rating in the 40s, QBR probably in the 10s somewhere. A bad game. He's going to have bad games. He is going to have more bad games. Hopefully he's going to have some good games coming up. A lot of the tweets I saw were pointing to the regression. He started his year with two games, quarterback rating well over 100. He was the top-rated quarterback in the NFL through two weeks. Had six touchdowns, no picks. And then slowly the quarterback ratings have gone down. It went down in week three. It went down in week four. It's hopefully bottomed out after last night's game. And people are pointing to that probably accurately and saying, look, the more film people are getting on this guy, they're defending him differently. He's expecting things to be there instead of actually seeing what's on the field. That led to that first interception. It was a a route design the Packers go to a lot. Clearly Jordan Love just thought it was going to be there and didn't take the time to take a look to his right and see that the linebacker had scouted it well and was sitting right in his peripheral and ready to pick that ball off. Yes, the regression is not exciting right now for Jordan Love. Now he has to make the adjustment. He came out and played well very early. Defenses have adjusted to him. Now, hopefully with a bye week and some extra time, they're going to get in the film room and then they're going to be able to make adjustments. I just need to see the whole 17 games. You know what I mean? That would be my argument right now for Jordan Love. In my mind, Jordan Love has had two good games, the first two games of the year. Could have been better in the fourth quarter in that second game. I'm not going to argue, though, with six touchdowns and zero interceptions and the top quarterback rating in the league for two games. He had an excellent fourth quarter in the comeback against the Saints. He was not very good against the Lions. I would put half of that on how bad the offensive line was, and the offensive line was a disaster again last night. Max Crosby, much like Aiden Hutchinson in the Lions week, 
Max Crosby was just living in the backfield. He was living in Jordan Love's face, putting pressure on him in almost every play. I want to say all three picks, maybe not the first one because he got that ball out quickly. I think the second two interceptions, he was pressured by Crosby before making a poor decision or having to roll out. Crosby affected both of those plays. How many times did they say Crosby's name last night? That's a factor as well. The offensive line has been trash. Part of that is David Bakhtiari now being out for the year. Rashid Walker tested out okay the first couple games. He has regressed, similar to Jordan Love. You got Elton Jenkins back. Didn't seem to help a lot in terms of Max Crosby. That was a part of last night, too. Easily his worst game. First two games, pretty good. Third game, can't knock a fourth-quarter comeback against a decent team. Fourth game, a lot of pressure. Didn't make very good reads. Didn't make a ton of good decisions. And then yesterday was a debacle, for lack of a better term. He didn't get protection. The running game didn't help him a ton, even though they tried to establish it, and he made some really poor choices. If you want to take that five-game sample, and then the, I see people going back to that Chiefs game two years ago or the Lions game that year where he started the final game that year in an inconsequential game. If you want to add those in and say that he's made seven starts and not five starts, fine. In my mind, he has made five starts. Two good games, one okay game, one kind of bad game, and one really bad game. If you're willing to say that's it and I've seen enough, I see all the mistakes, I don't see him getting better, I see him moving backward, I don't think he's the guy, I want to see Sean Clifford or I want them to tank and get a high draft pick and look at Caleb Williams or Drake May or whatever. If that's your prerogative, then fine. I need to see the whole year. I want to see the whole season, how he now adjusts to the counterpunches defenses have thrown to him, how Matt LaFleur adjusts the play calling. I want the full 17-game sample size. Now, If we see a game like we saw last night in week 15, 16, 17, then I'll probably be clicking record on this podcast and saying, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if this is the guy. Maybe you give him the early part of next year in the offseason. I don't know, though. If this is still how it looks at the end of the year, then you've got some serious question marks. If he comes back from this bye week and has a two-touchdown, no-pick game, and they beat the Broncos, and he's able to limit the turnovers, and they design game plans that play to his strengths, and he gets the ball out quickly, we start to see the deep ball accuracy get better as the year goes on, we can feel good about that. Right now, we've seen five games. I want to see 17 full games. Remember we talked about the beginning of the year, that I I thought my hope was and my thought was Jordan Love could be as good as crappy Aaron Rodgers and this team could win eight or nine games. If you go pass-fail through the first five games of the can you be as good as crappy Aaron Rodgers in 2022, he passed week one, he passed week two, he passed week three. All right, if you want to say he failed week four, fine. To me, that was more pressure, whatever. Fail, fail. Three passes and two fails through five weeks. Let's see what the balance looks like at the end of this entire season. And look, we've talked about this. This is a fan base right now that is dealing with different expectations for the first time in a long time. We have been so programmed as Packer fans over the last 30 years, really, with Hall of Fame quarterback play. Our expectation every year is that we're going to be in the playoffs, we're going to win a division, and try to make a run at the Super Bowl. That's not what this team is. I would love to come on here or have come on before week one or two and say that this team is a team that has a chance to make a Super Bowl. They don't. They don't. They don't have the talent. They're too young. They're the youngest roster in the league. These are the kind of things that are going to happen with a young roster. We said right from the beginning, the Vegas season win total for this team was 7.5. I said if you go back to the podcast maybe right before week one or the weeks leading into week one, I said my feeling was Jordan Love could be as good as crappier and Rodgers, and that means this team could maybe win eight or nine games and battle for a wild card. It's possible I mentioned division title in there. 
I got excited after the Bear game. We all did. I think we were all on the same page of this being a transitional year with a super young roster and a new franchise quarterback, hopefully. We're going to ride the ups and downs. Well, when you come out and you house the Bears and you have a close game against the Falcons and you have the big fourth quarter comeback in the home opener, justifiably so, maybe we got a little too excited by the way things began. This team still, to me, is a team that's going to be in the 7-9 to nine win window. I'll grant you right now, based on what we saw last night, we're airing more towards 7-9. than nine. There's a reason Vegas had them at that win total. I think that's still the window you're looking at. I just want to see the full 17 games. I want to see full 17, Jordan Love, Matt LaFleur working together, getting Aaron Jones back, which is a large portion of this as well, seeing how he works with the most talented player on offense. That changes things too. Do you think they win last night they have Aaron Jones? If Aaron Jones touches the ball 20 times last night, do they win? I think they do. Does that mean Jordan Love doesn't throw three picks? I don't know, I don't know how the whole thing plays out. I want to see Jordan Love, hopefully with Aaron Jones, for the rest of the year, and then at the end of the 17 games, we figure out where we're at. We did say, and I know for a fact we said this before the year began, the biggest part of this year, the number one thing they have to figure out is, is Jordan Love the guy? If you win six games and you find out Jordan Love is the guy, that's fine. If you win four games and we figure out Jordan Love is the guy, that's fine. If you win 10 games, then certainly Jordan Love is the guy. I don't know that I cared so much about win total this year. You love to win as many games as possible. You'd love to make the playoffs, all that stuff. As a fan, it's hard not to root for that. The number one thing they have to figure out is, is Jordan Love the guy moving forward? And right now the jury is still out after five weeks. We've had some positive things and then some negative things. The most recent thing was a very negative thing. Now we see where they go from here. You've got the bye week. You've got a bad Broncos team on the road after that, October 22nd. That's a 325 kickoff. I doubt there are lines out for that that are two weeks out. We find out now what adjustments they can make. Hopefully you come back in that game with Aaron Jones, with Christian Watson, with Elton Jenkins. I'm not sure what other tweaking you could do with the roster. Coming out of last night, an injury concern is Quay Walker. He'd been having a very productive sophomore campaign, had a couple of tackles in the backfield. He left with a knee injury. Nobody really expounded on that after the game. Hopefully he gets back. Hopefully Devondre gets back, and you're cooking with a fairly healthy team once they hit Denver and a team that's going to make some adjustments and hopefully take some steps forward after a few steps back last night. But not encouraging. I mean, it was not an encouraging game last night. That's going to happen with a young team as they now sit at 2-3 and three on the year. All right, let's talk about the Badgers. That's not a whole lot better. At least they won. 24-13 at home against Rutgers on Saturday. Another blah game. Another Christian game. We're five weeks in, and, and it's another Christian game. I do want to talk about just a few things. Tanner Mordecai. The numbers aren't great on the stat sheet. When you watch that full game through, and when you go back and watch a lot of these games, he is getting no help. The offensive line is not good by Badger standards. I would say last year's offensive line for the Badgers was one of the worst I've seen in my lifetime. I'm 39 years old. It's worse this year. It's just not good this year. He is seeing a ton of drops in the wide receiving core. He was 9 of 20 in the first half. There were five, maybe six drops in that half. You complete half of those or four of those, the numbers look a lot better. My feeling right now is that Tanner Mordecai is doing as much as he can with very little. Expectations were high for Tanner Mordecai, a big name in the transfer portal. Like we talked about, as Badger fans, you can't help but think of Russell Wilson when you get a big-name transfer quarterback. He's not going to be that. No one's ever going to be that ever again. When you go back and look at these five games, given the drops and given the offensive line play and the run game not being on point, really, he is doing the best that he can. Those numbers don't look good. 
to me, he is unheralded right now as a guy who is leading this team and has gotten this team to 4-1 and one by doing all the small stuff that he can. He's been chewing up yards on the ground, 50 more rush yards on Saturday. He accounted for over 200 yards. Again, the stats are not sexy. When you watch these games front to back, though, he's not getting a lot of help out there. And the offensive line is an issue. Another big issue to me for this team is the center, Jake Renfro. These snaps, what is going on with the snaps from him to Tanner Mordecai? They are lobbing in there. It's like rookie of the year at the end of rookie of the year. Float it. That's what they look like. And they're not accurate either. They are not getting there on time. They're wobbly, and they're not getting to Mordecai. He's not getting the ball in a spot where he can do something with it right away. That's a big problem. It maybe sounds like a small problem. If you go on Badger Reddit boards, which I wouldn't recommend, or you go on Badger Twitter or listen to the Badger post games, there are some fans and more every week that are noticing that and starting to understand how big of a problem it is. When you're in this spread offense, it's about timing. All offenses are about timing, especially the spread offense, getting the ball out quickly and knowing exactly where you're going with it. Getting the ball back to the quarterback in a quick fashion is also a big part of the spread offense. They've been fortunate so far to play teams that have not had elite front sevens. Let me tell you something. This team's got Iowa this week. They don't. They have a good defense, but they don't scare me to the level that Iowa, or Ohio State does. In, what is it, two weeks or two and a half weeks, when this team plays Ohio State or if they play Michigan down the road or Penn State or whatever, those elite teams in the Big Ten that they're trying to track down, those front sevens are going to be in the backfield by the time Mordecai even touches the football. That's how long these snaps are taking. They must find a way to improve that. I don't know if Renfro can work on that midseason. I don't know why he couldn't. If there's a change you could make there, how they feel about his play beyond that, I don't know. But those snaps are undermining this offense, and it undermines the run game. The other part of it is you're running out of these shotgun pistol sets, and the offensive line isn't good or has not been good to begin with. Then by the time that snap gets back there, and by the time Mordecai hands it off, you've got two or three guys in the backfield. I don't know what you want to do. Braylon Allen had another eh kind of game against Rutgers. You just wonder if he's healthy at all. He looks like the oldest 19-year-old that I've ever seen. There's a lot of miles on those tires. We did see Acker get some carries. Ches Malusi first week without him. Acker looked fresh. Acker was attacking the hole. He had a spring in his step. My guess is Braylon Allen is just not anywhere close to healthy. We've heard rumors of him being dinged up for a lot of the year. He is just not decisive. Not the back that we've seen his first two years. Now with running backs, you can put those miles on quick. Hopefully that's not the case. Hopefully once he gets back to 100%, if he does at some point, we will see the Braylon Allen that we saw the first couple of years in the league. Hopefully this is not, speaking of regressive steps back, a regressive step back for Braylon Allen. He just looks really slow out there. And they had a bunch of drops on Saturday again. Skylar Bell had another one that probably could have been a touchdown. That's his third of the year where it was right in the hands. Not the most perfect pass in the world. One he absolutely has to make, though. They had a bunch of those on Saturday again. And a turnover led to a backdoor cover. We told you never touch a double-digit spread right now for the Badgers. They should have covered that game. They had a 24-6 lead. They also had a fumble early from Braylon Allen in the Rutgers red zone that probably should have led to points. And then they had that fumble late that led to a Rutgers touchdown that ends up backdooring the spread at plus 14. They end up only losing by 11. Defense was good. Rutgers offense, not much to write home about. They have almost no aerial attack. Run defense, which has been a problem for the Badgers, was very productive on Sunday. The tackling was good. Again, it's Rutgers. You can only play the opponent in front of you, but the defense played pretty well, and they led the way. They kept that game. They kept Rutgers on a goose egg while the Badger offense tried to figure out and get some points on the board. It just leads to another one of those, all right, fine, you won. You won. 4-1 and one record, 2-0 and oh in the Big Ten. 
This is maybe where we're at this year, though. We've talked about this over several podcasts. Maybe we got wrapped up in the year one hype with Luke Fickle and all the transfers and the Fickle signal, looking at the schedule and how weak it looked. There's just more work to be done here than we maybe thought. I I think we were all hoping for a quick turnaround, for a quick fix in terms of the whole program to renovate this, to flip it, to flip this house as quickly as possible. This is going to take some time. There are some piping issues. There's some sewer issues. There's some grading issues. This is going to take longer than we thought it would. As I've said all along, I think great things are coming for this program under Luke Fickle. But we really do need to now adjust what our expectations are for this year. This may be just what this year is. And it probably is. We're five games into it. You're almost halfway through the year. I don't foresee this team growing by leaps and bounds. I know even before the Rutgers game, I said, well, maybe this is the game where they win by three or four touchdowns and the offense is clicking and they're putting up big points and pushing the ball downfield and all kind of comes together with this dairy raid offense. That might not happen this year. That might not. I mean, it just we may have to come to that realization that this is just going to be one of those years. Like the Packers, the Vegas season win total was what it was for a reason at eight and a half, the way the Packers was at seven and a half. This probably is a seven to eight win team. And if a couple of things go their way, they're going to hit the over. You take the win, especially if you have the season win total. They're 2-0 in the Big Ten West. The good news is the Big Ten West is a hot mess like it always is. And if you win this week against Iowa, you're firmly in the driver's seat for a Big Ten West championship. And you should beat a lot of these teams. Even with the way they're playing now, you should beat Iowa. You should beat Illinois the week after that. They're probably going to lose by four touchdowns to Ohio State on October 28th. You should beat Indiana. You should easily beat Northwestern, Nebraska, Minnesota. Nine wins, ten wins isn't out of play because the Big Ten West is so bad. I just don't know that we're going to get that game that we were all hoping that we would get at some point this year where they win 55-7 to and Mordecai has four touchdowns and they're chewing up yards on the ground and the defense is knocking guys over. I don't know if that's going to happen. We haven't seen it yet, and we are almost halfway through the year. 4-1, 2-0 in the Big Ten West. With a matchup against Iowa, Iowa comes in 2-1 in the Big Ten West. That's the only other team over 500. You win this game, you are very much in the driver's seat to win the Big Ten, Ten West Championship and get absolutely murder-balled by either Ohio State or Penn State, or it looks like Michigan probably could come out of the Big Ten. Michigan might be the best team in the country. You've got Michigan number two in the country, Ohio State number three in the country, Penn State's top ten. They're not going to be competitive against any of those teams, and it's probably time to start accepting that. Just accept it now. We were all hoping for better this year. This is going to be a 2018-2019 Christ kind of team where you win nine games, you have a decent bowl, and then hopefully next year and the year after that we start to see those bigger steps forward. It's just not going to happen as quickly as we wanted it to. Iowa coming up this weekend. Badgers do open as 10-point favorites. I don't know if I hate that, only because Cade McNamara is out for the year. Their quarterback that was at Michigan Now the former Badger, Deacon Hill. This could be a revenge game. Deacon Hill, the starting quarterback for Iowa. He has not done much so far this year. Half of a game two weeks ago. Got the full start in their win against Purdue last week. Uninspiring numbers, though. We know the Hawkeye defense is going to bring it. Badgers open as 10-point favorites entering play this Saturday. I'll be there. Me and the boys, we're going. We're going to Camp Randall. I haven't been to a game. I don't think I've been to a game since 2016. I want to say the last game that I went to was the first game that we saw Alex Hornibrook get on the field, maybe against BYU or Utah State or one of those teams. It was a while ago, 2016, 2017. I'm excited. I'm excited to get to Camp Randall. It's always a fun time. You cannot beat a 3 p.m. kickoff. That's what we have on Saturday. And again, if they get the win, they are going to be very much in the driver's seat for a Big Ten West championship, which might be where this season, the highest achievement this season could see. That's where we're at at the moment. 
We'll wrap up on the Brewers. I just want to throw this out there for you. I read a blog about this. We mentioned this kind of briefly in the last podcast, in the post-mortem podcast. By the way, the Diamondbacks are unstoppable <laughs> because, of course, it just seems like the Brewers are the fluffer, isn't it? Don't Google that, Mom. It just seems like they are. In 2019, they lose to the Nationals in the wild card. Nationals go on to win the World Series. In 2020, they lose to the Dodgers in the first round. Dodgers go on to win the World Series. In 2021, they lose to the Braves in the first round. Braves go on to win the World Series. Didn't make the playoffs in 2022. 2023, you get swept by the Diamondbacks. And then Arizona goes to L.A. at Dodger Stadium against a 100-win Dodger team. And they put it on them in two games. They crushed Clayton Kershaw. Clayton Kershaw was pitching BP in the first inning of game one. He didn't even get out of the first inning. I know Kershaw's had his issues in October. That's a long part of the back of his baseball card and his Wikipedia plot summary. He's one of the greatest regular season pitchers of all time. He had a good playoff run in 2020 where he went, whatever, 5-1 and one in six starts and had a sub-3 ERA, and they won the title in the pandemic year. He just has not had that success in October for whatever reason. That was maybe the penultimate there. I mean, that was that was the opus of the October issues. He didn't. He got one out. And the Diamondbacks are now a win away from moving on to the NLCS. They're a win away from sweeping the 100-win Dodgers because, of course. Anyway, we know in the offseason, we still don't have anything on Craig Council. We know the offseason in terms of players, a lot of what we look forward to in 2024 is going to revolve around what they do with Corbin Burns, Willie Adamas, and Brandon Woodruff. Now, Woodruff's injury complicates this Like we said in the post-mortem podcast, if you want to keep Woody in Milwaukee, the injury may actually be a silver lining because he may need to sign a two- or three-year deal where he recovers for part of 2024, comes back midway through the year, and has to prove it for a year and a half before he hits the free agent market and can make some real money on a bigger deal. Uh, The Brewers may be able to nab him on a two- or three-year deal when they probably couldn't have prior to that injury. Those are the three guys, though. What do you do with them? You're at a spot where their trade value will be the highest, even though Burns struggled in the playoffs and Adamas had kind of a down year. The trade return is not going to be bigger than it is right now. And a small market team, more often than not, and this is probably what they're going to do, they're going to trade Corbin for a couple of prospects, trade Adamas for a couple of prospects, whatever they do with Woody, trade him for prospects or hang on to him or he signs a two- or three-year deal, whatever. That's the likely path, and then you call up some of these guys, and like we said, you hope to find a first or third baseman. Maybe Tyler Black can fill that role, and you fill in the spots on the periphery, and you win 87 games, and they get swept in the first round again. Now, an alternative plan would be the 2011 plan. In 2011, they knew Prince was gone. They, by all small market measures, should have traded him before the 2011 season because he only had one year left on his deal, and they were never going to re-sign him. That would have been the plan most of the time. Well, that year, they make the trade for Zach Grinke in December. They pick up Sean Markham for all of his playoff devils, had an excellent regular season. I think he was 12-4 and or 12-5 and in the regular season, and then just imploded on himself, puked on himself, ran out of gas in the playoffs. They pick up Grinke, they pick up Markham, they bolster the starting rotation, and they say, we're going for it. We know we're going to lose Prince and this middle-of-the-order bat, and some of these other guys the next few years we're going to lose too. The offense is never going to look better than it does right now with Braun and Fielder and Hart and Weeks in the middle of that order. Bolster the pitching staff, and we're going for it. Future be damned. If we lose these guys, we lose them. That could be a plan for this year. That was the blog I was reading. The argument that blog was making was enough of these 85, 90-win years where you're built on pitching and defense, but you don't have any offense, and you just ultimately know you're not going to go in the playoffs. Why not pull a 2011 
Go out and trade something, prospects for. You could trade your own prospects. We have a ton of prospects. Trade your prospects or sign somebody. Go all in financially for a year. Find a bat at first base. Find a bat at third base. Beef up that offensive order. Keep Burns. Keep Woody. Hopefully he comes back. Keep Adamas. And then Adamas, if you pick up a couple of bats, is a guy that would hit second or sixth or seventh in the lineup where he probably belongs. Put a team out there that is all in. And if they don't make it, fine. And then if there are a couple of dark years there, fine. That was this blogger's perspective. And I got to say, after I read it, I didn't hate it. Uh, Like we talked about in the postseason podcast, this team is built on pitching and defense. And you get a hot stretch from the offense here or there. If you do that, most years, this team can find a way to win 85 to 90 games, get a wild card spot, in this year's case, win a division. Ultimately, though, you're not going to see – I don't think – we can all hope you get hot the right time. We talked about that all year. you got to get hot the right time. They didn't. That's all you're hoping for, though, is you get a hot stretch of offense at the right time. More often than not, though, those seasons with no offense and only pitching and defense are going to play out the way we saw them play out this year, the way we saw them play out in 2021 and 2020 and all those years. Would you prefer, as a Brewer fan, go all in for 2024, trade – Trade your own prospects. Instead of Tyler Black coming up and trying to fill a void at first or third, trade him and trade him with another prospect and get a legitimate bat. Would you prefer that method? Instead of winning 85 games a year and losing early in the playoffs, but being competitive all year, would you prefer go all in every five or six years and then there are going to be three or four years there where you lose 90 games? Which would you prefer if you only had those two options? And since we're living in a world now where we're coming off of another 85-90 win year that saw them dissolve in the playoffs, I think I got convinced on that blog to do that, to find a way to sign a bat, find a way to trade for a bat, beef up that offensive lineup, give give yourselves a legitimate middle of the order, keep Burns, keep Woody, keep Adamas, and then whatever happens after 2024 happens. But give yourself a shot, a puncher's chance at an actual run, at a real NLCS World Series title run. I don't know. It just I just want to throw that out there to the listener. See how that strikes you. What would you prefer? Would you prefer consistently winning mid to upper 80s and making the playoffs and being out early? Or would you prefer once every five or six years or seven years, you have a team that has an actual real chance, a better's chance at winning the World Series, and then you have to suffer through four to five years where you lose 85 or 90 games? It's just a little debate for you. All right, that'll do it for us here on your Tuesday morning. Appreciate you hanging with us through the little mini podcast on Monday, the Placeholder Podcast. We'll come back after it on Friday, talk about the week for the Packers and maybe any comments that we'll hear from LaFleur today or Jordan Love and how they plan to move forward injury-wise. Maybe we'll know more about Quay Walker by Friday. We'll get you set for Badgers, Iowa. Like I said, I'm going with everybody to Camp Randall on Saturday. That should be a good time. We'll break that down, and we'll be closer, one week closer to Bucks basketball. We're almost there, baby. They had the first preseason game. Nobody really played. Brooke Lopez played. They but nobody of consequence played. They do play tonight, Tuesday. We'll see. Maybe if we see the debut of Giannis and Dame out there together. I think maybe they'll play one preseason game. Maybe tonight will be the night. But we are two and a half weeks away from the debut of Dame and Giannis on October 26th. Can't wait. We'll chat with you Friday. 